All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into GoodRanchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick and to get that deal and let's get on with the show. Hi, this is Nick Freitas and welcome back to Making the Argument. And today what we're going to talk about is this idea, this belief that I have that the way we've been taught to think about the Constitution is in many respects, especially within our higher learning, within even public education, is flawed, significantly flawed. And we're going to talk today about the source of federal power. We're going to talk today about how should we look at the Constitution in order to properly understand what the intention of the Constitution was. And in order to have that debate, we're going to talk about the concept of nullification. And Tom Woods has done a lot of good research on this. We talked about this in our previous episode when we talked about three clauses, the General Welfare Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, and the Interstate Commerce Clause which are routinely misinterpreted in order to grant more federal power. But I think deeper than that, and, and even more importantly, especially for those of you out there that, that have kids, that you're trying to teach your kids about the idea of inherent or natural rights or God-given rights about the Constitution. And I think this is an area where conservatives actually screw this up a lot. I was sitting on a panel a few days ago about the nature of the Constitution. And one of the points I was trying to get across is that when we look at the Constitution, if you look at the Constitution as purely a document which protects or guarantees certain rights, I think we're misunderstanding an important component of our education and understanding it. Because the key question that we have to ask when we look at things like the Bill of Rights or when we look at things like enumerated powers in the Constitution for the federal government is not just the rights that are protected, but asking the all-important question, protected from what? That's critical. Because as George Washington said, government is a lot like fire. It can be a useful tool or it can be a very, very dangerous master. And the whole point of the Bill of Rights, the whole point of having enumerated powers for the federal government and not giving the federal government a blank check to do whatever it wanted was because we're protecting those rights that you have that are inherent to you, your very nature of being a human being, from the government. That's what we're protecting you from. The Bill of Rights is essentially going out and saying, look, we're about to create this federal government, but here's all the things that we're going to do, or the statements that we're going to make, or the amendments that we're going to create to protect you from the very entity we're about to create. And it's important to understand the nature of that relationship between the people, the states, and the federal government. If you don't educate people on that, then they're going to grow up assuming that the, the Constitution is all they need to guarantee their rights, 
that the, the federal government has all kinds of power and should protect our rights, which is all true, but they're not going to get that they are attempting to protect you from the very government the Constitution is creating. That's why those boundaries are put in place in the form of amendments, the Bill of Rights, and in the form of enumerated powers. And so it begs the question, what do we do then? What do we do when the federal government essentially ignores the restrictions on its own power? What, what is the, as Jefferson put, the rightful remedy that states have within their power in order to fight back against a federal government that has essentially gone wild, has gone out of control, has ignored the boundaries that have been put in place? And nullification was the process that Thomas Jefferson, that James Madison wrote about in the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798. So we're going to talk about that day because I want it to be properly understood. Unfortunately, when we talk about nullification, there's a lot of people that right off the bat say, oh, well, you're a neo-Confederate. You're pro-slavery because there were people that attempted to use nullification in either to fight back against certain civil rights legislation or use it as justification to essentially ignore the federal government even when it was doing something that potentially fell within its boundaries. Okay, but that's not the whole history of nullification. It's the history of nullification that is fed to us by people that want to concentrate more power in the hands of the federal government. And it's important to understand nullification as a tool. And like any tool, it can be used for bad purposes or it can be used for good purposes. But the real thing that we're going to get to is the legitimacy of it. Does it actually make sense with respect to the sort of country we're supposed to be. So let's talk real quick about what is nullification. So if you read the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798, what it was essentially stating, it was laying out this framework, uh, this conceptual framework, but I would also argue a legal framework where it essentially states that the constitution is a compact, right? It was a compact between the states and the federal government. The federal government did not create the states. The states created the federal government. And when they created it, they did it with certain stipulations. Among those stipulations was, was the idea that the federal government had certain roles and responsibilities, but it was supposed to stay confined within those roles and responsibilities. And we set up a, a federalist system where you have power at the local level, you have power at the state level, you have power at the federal level, and that all power is, is der derived from the people themselves. So what happens, again, here's the, the primary question, what happens when the federal government oversteps its boundaries? Well, a lot of people will instinctively say, well, that's the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's role is to determine whether or not the federal government has violated those principles, those constraints placed upon it. Well, the obvious problem here is that the Supreme Court is a portion of the federal government. And we already outlined in our previous episode how there have been cases where the Supreme Court clearly made decisions and made rulings which violated the Constitution or used incredibly tortured logic. Again, nowhere in the Interstate Commerce Clause was it ever conceived that that would convey the authority to the federal government to regulate your garden. And yet, the Supreme Court in 1942 essentially said that that's exactly what it could do. So what happens when you have a situation where it is so blatant so blatant that the federal government's overstepped its boundaries. Now, a common response to this is, well, you just got to elect better people. You got to appoint better justices. And you know what? That's all great. Sure. That, that, is, that is certainly a remedy for, for trying to um, you know, take care of that problem. But it's not the only one. And what happened was, <clears throat> is in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions, Thomas Jefferson laid out this idea of nullification 
and interposition. So it was this idea that the states are not subordinate to the federal government in all areas. And some people are going to listen to this and go, well, wait a second, what about the supremacy clause that says that federal law supersedes state law? If you read the supremacy clause carefully, what you learn is that federal law supersedes state law only when the federal government is carrying out or passing that law with respect to its enumerated powers. So if the federal government is now passing a law which goes beyond the boundaries of its power, you can't claim the supremacy clause with that. If you could, then once again, you have to, it begs the question, why do you have enumerated powers? If the federal government, if Congress can simply pass the law, the president can sign it, the Supreme Court can approve it, despite the fact that it runs completely contrary to protected rights of the authorities, well then, why do you have enumerated powers? And this is where Jefferson and Madison made the argument that it is the appropriate role of the states to intervene on behalf of the rights of their own citizens and to essentially de determine if a federal law is null and void, right? And, the, and the, the test for this was, is it constitutional? Now, again, you have Madison versus, uh, or uh, Madison, Marbury versus Madison, which was one of the uh, the, the first rules where the Supreme Court essentially, you know, decided for itself that it, that it had this kind of oversight component. Now, originally, the Supreme Court was set up to issue opinions. It was set up to, you know, guide federal courts. But the idea that the federal government would be the final arbiter on what was constitutional was never properly understood by the states. They never accepted that when they actually went through their ratifying conventions. And so that begs the question, right? When the federal government and the states disagree on something, and I'm not, I'm not talking about a state doesn't like a particular federal law. When I'm saying that a state's contention is that a federal law supersedes or a federal law goes beyond the boundaries that have been put in place, does that state have to comply with it? And again, this is where the argument comes in. Well, okay, you're just a neo-confederate. We're going to talk a little bit about that and the history of nullification, but that's what nullification is. It's the state essentially saying that, okay, federal government, you have passed a law, but that law will not be observed within the jurisdiction of a particular state. Interposition takes it a step further. So nullification, you can almost think of it as the state doesn't recognize that federal law. Interposition is when the state actively steps in between the federal government and the people in order to prevent the federal government from carrying out that law, right? That's what nullification and interposition is, right? Interposition is. So how's it been used, right? How's this been used? Is this just some, you know, crazy concept that, you know, hasn't been applied since 1798? Um, you know, is, is, this, is this found in good legal precedent or is this just something that essentially people that lost the last couple of federal elections, uh, you know, were mad and so now we're just gonna, you know, tell the federal government to go stick it and, and we're not, we don't want to, we don't want to play ball anymore. Well, no, that's not what it, what it is. If you look at the reason why nullification first came up as an issue, the, the, the kindling point, right? The spark that drove all this was the Alien and Sedition Acts. So the Alien and Sedition Acts were passed during the uh, John Adams presidency. And essentially we had this proxy war going on with France and you had the Federalists, which at that point comprised the executive branch because uh, John Adams was a Federalist and then the Federalists also controlled Congress. And so they passed a law, there was four acts within the Alien and Sedition Acts and the one that really caused the most problems was this idea that you could not print, I want you to imagine this, you could not print things that were skeptical or critical 
of the government. Right? Like if you caused to be, if you caused to print, if you associated yourself with it, if you wrote things that were critical of the administration, then you could be fined for that. You could be jailed for that. In fact, there was a congressman that was put in jail because he wrote articles that were critical of the Adams administration. And he actually won re-election from jail. But that's what spurred Virginia and Kentucky to come back and say, wait a second, this is a clear violation of First Amendment rights. It goes outside the boundaries of what the federal government is permitted to do. And so therefore, the Alien Sedition Acts, or certain components of the Alien Sedition Acts, will not be enforced in Virginia and Kentucky. Now, you look at that, and I would think that most of us now, if Congress tried to pass a law, I want you to imagine if Donald Trump was president with a Republican-controlled Congress, like he had his first two years, and they passed a law which said, you can't write critical things about the government. I mean, what would the response be? Would, would, would states, would left-wing states abide by that? Or would they nullify it? Well, I think they would probably nullify it, and I think that would be the correct course of action. And that's what you saw with the Alien and Sedition Acts. But it doesn't stop there, all right? Some of the states that were federalists or that were more federalist-dominated came back and lambasted Jefferson and Madison, Virginia and Kentucky, and said, well, no, the federal government has full authority to do this, and, and we don't agree with Virginia or Kentucky that this is an appropriate course of action. Okay, fast forward one administration later where now Thomas Jefferson is president, and Thomas Jefferson imposes an embargo. Because again, we have these proxy wars going on. We have uh, English, the English Navy, and we have the French Navy essentially capturing U.S. vessels and press ganging, forcing into service American sailors into the British and the French Navy. And so Thomas Jefferson passed an embargo. But part of that embargo included federal agents coming in, inspecting ships without a warrant, in order to determine whether or not states were trying to get past the embargo. Because the bottom line is, trade, especially in the northern states at that point, was heavily reliant upon exchange with foreign countries. And so a lot of these same states that bashed Jefferson and Madison on the concept of nullification when it came to the Alien Sedition Acts, then came back and said, wait a second, no, the federal government doesn't have the power to, to search property without a warrant, to seize property without a warrant. And now the federal government isn't engaging in a policy which is destroying the economic lives of millions of people within the North. And so states actually passed resolutions saying that they were not going to comply with certain aspects of that embargo, right? So that was another use of nullification. So in one case, you've got predominantly, you know, uh, certain Southern states, Virginia and Kentucky, when it came to the Alien Sedition Acts, then you have predominantly Northern states when it came to, um, you know, basically violations, arguably, of Fourth and Fifth Amendment, All right? What's another uh, concept of this? Now, Another one has to do with 1828, and that had to do with tariff legislation. And this is the one, 1828, with J.C. Calhoun. This is the one that your kids actually learn about with nullification, right? They might get a footnote to what happened with respect to the Alien and Sedition Act. They might get a footnote with, what, with respect to what happened with the embargo in the North. But then when it came to tariffs, when it came to the federal government passing a series of tariffs, not for the purpose of raising revenue, but for the purpose of protecting industry in the North at the expense of industry in the South, you had Southern states coming in going, again, we're not going to abide by this because it is, it is contradictory to what we see federal power containing, and it is absolutely devastating to our economies. 
And a lot of that, that led up to the Civil War. It wasn't just the slavery component. It was also the tariff component. But again, when you read about this in history, it's always read from the lens that, well, the nullification people were all pro-slavery people. All right, so is that true? Because obviously, you know, things changed after the end of the Civil War. So was nullification dead at that point? Was there anybody else using nullification? As a matter of fact, there was right before the Civil War and continuing after. Let's talk about some of the cases where nullification was used by abolitionists. All right, so you, you, might, have, you might have some people in the South claiming nullification when it came to the issue of slavery, but you had other people in the North claiming nullification or using nullification in order to combat slavery. And a perfect example of this has to do with, you have Article 4, Section 2, which was the Runaway Slave Clause. Right? It was, and now, obviously, this was, um, this was rendered null and void when we had the passage of the 13th Amendment. You can no longer have slavery. But originally, within the Constitution, you had the Runaway Slave Clause. And then in 1850, you had the Runaway Slave Act. And here's what that meant. That meant that if you escaped from a slave state into a free state, you still weren't free. You had to make it all the way to Canada. Right? Well, you had certain states that thought this was completely irresponsible and ran completely contrary to within the laws within their own state. And a perfect example of this happened actually in Wisconsin. In 1854, Joshua Glover had been taken into custody by federal marshals. The abolitionists were absolutely incensed by this. And so they actually went into the jail and released Joshua Glover. In 1858, the Supreme Court ruled that he had to be taken back into custody. Now, keep in mind, Wisconsin state legislature had their own laws governing this. The Wisconsin Supreme Court upheld those laws. And they clearly didn't like the idea that a federal marshal, and you had a, a real problem with this at the time where U.S. marshals were coming in and sometimes taking people that were not even runaway slaves. They were either freeborn and they had attained their freedom, and now they were taking them back and putting them back into bondage. And you had northern states going, we're not going to comply with this law because we think it's a violation of federal power. And in 1859, the Wisconsin legislature actually passed a resolution in support of nullification, and they actually hearkened back to the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. And, and throughout this entire process, you had Byron Payne, who was a lawyer, who argued that the federal government cannot be the exclusive judge of its own powers. And, and, I, and I, want to, I want to spend just a little moment kind of talking about this, because this is important. Because again, you will have a lot of people that will talk about the supremacy clause and saying, well, look, how is the government supposed to function if the federal government can do one thing and states can just simply ignore it? Well, again, if you look at the nature of the Constitution, it was a compact between states and the federal government. And so the question is, would you ever engage in a contract? Would you ever sign a contract with somebody where the other party to that contract had the full authority to determine whether or not the contract was actually being carried out in accordance with the language that you signed. Would you ever agree to that? Would, would you ever get a mortgage with your bank where you said, okay, here's the nature of our contract, but if something goes wrong or if we have a disagreement, the bank ultimately gets to decide? No, you would never sign that. Right? You, you would require some sort of mediation process where you, as an equal party, to the contract, to the compact, could actually adjudicate the differences that you have, the differences of opinion. But if we apply the supremacy clause to mean anything the federal government does, or we accept this premise 
that the federal government, the Supreme Court, has absolute authority to determine when something is constitutional. Well, now the states are no longer a party to a compact. They're completely subservient to the compact. And that was not the understanding of any of the state legislatures when they were ratifying the Constitution. And so that's, that's very important. And you even see this even after the, 18, after the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution. You see the Supreme Court actually acknowledging this in 1869 in Lane County versus Oregon, where they once again talk about the federal government being uh, uh, constrained by the expressly delegated powers to the federal government. So here, here's what this really comes down to. If you're willing to accept that the Supreme Court gets to decide, you know, in, in a sense of finality, whether or not something's constitution, what you've essentially accepted is that one party to the contract gets to decide the boundaries of the contract. And that does not make sense. Again, nobody, if you look at it in any practical contract that you sign in a business contract, whatever it is, you would never agree to a situation where one party of the contract got to decide whether or not the contract was being faithfully carried out. You would not agree to that. And so this, this begs the question, how do we adjudicate these differences? Well, there was different theories on this. So you, you had powerful and respected people like Justice Joseph Story, and he wrote a book called The Commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. It was written in 1833. And he had this theory of the Constitution, that the Constitution was not so much a compact between the states and the federal government, but, but rather a, a sense of national will, right? That, that it, was, it was the people forming the federal government. And, and, and therefore, states did not have the authority to essentially push back against federal usurpations of power. Right? But again, this, this nationalist theory versus the compact theory runs headlong into all of the debates that we have during the ratifying conventions at the states. None of the states thought that they were entering into that sort of compact, nor should they have thought that. The anti-federalists were deeply concerned about. The federalists spent a great deal of their time convincing the states that this was not the sort of arrangement that they were agreeing to. And now to come back decades after the fact, and say, oh, well, no, 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 it really wasn't the states and the federal government, it was the, it was the people. Well, that's not accurate. That is not an accurate reflection of what was going on at the time. Both for, for you know, philosophical reasons, through historical reasons of just, again, looking at the nature of the debate, but also for practical reasons, as I mentioned before, because again, nobody would enter into a contract where one party got to decide whether or not the contract was being fulfilled. So why does this matter? There are a lot of people that are frustrated with the growth and power of the federal government, and they are no longer convinced that they're going to solve this problem purely by electing better members to Congress, or by electing a better president, or by having better appointees to the Supreme Court. And the reason why they're not convinced of this is very well grounded, because if you look at the growth of the federal government, really starting in the 1920, or excuse me, the, 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 under the Wilson administration, rapidly expanded under the uh, FDR administration, and then once again, rapidly expanded under the Johnson administration. And as you see a Supreme Court that is increasingly willing, or has been increasingly willing, all the way up until the Rehnquist quote, uh, Court and even beyond, to allow for the federal government to grow beyond its enumerated powers, 
people are getting back to the point where like, wait a second, there, there has to be another remedy for this. And that remedy has been a, a reintroduction of the concept of nullification. Now, I'm going to give you some examples of how nullification is being used in a modern perspective. And what you're going to find is it's not being used for racist principles like a lot of people would like you to think. In fact, one of the most clear-cut cases of nullification in the late 20th and 21st century has been marijuana laws. Now, a lot of conservatives don't like the legalization of marijuana, but we have to look at the instrument that's being used, the instrument of nullification. States are essentially pushing back in, against the federal government and saying, show us where in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, you actually have the authority to regulate marijuana within the borders of a particular state. They may have authority to regulate it, Again, depending on how you want to interpret the Interstate Commerce Clause, they may have the authority to regulate it to some degree if marijuana is grown in California and then sold in Colorado. But if marijuana is grown in California and consumed in California, where's the federal government's jurisdiction? And the answer is, is it isn't there. It isn't there. And so you see more and more states pushing back against this. Now, the people that will tell you that it's all doom and gloom if states start engaging in nullification, I ask the simple question, right? It is still illegal on a federal level to grow or consume marijuana. And yet it's legal in several states. In fact, it's legal in Washington, D.C., the seat of the federal government. Now, here's my question. Has the federal government deployed the 82nd Airborne Division to Denver, Colorado? Is the Pacific Fleet entering into the harbor in San Francisco in order to shut this down? No. Why is that? Well, it's actually relatively simple. Nullification is not meant to lead ultimately to things like secession, which is, is a, a common critique of nullification. Nullification is a practical way that states can push back against federal laws, which they find to be unconstitutional, in such a way that allows us to, to stay a unified whole, to stay as a, a member to the United States, while at the same time protecting against federal encroachment onto those jurisdictions which properly belong to the states or to the people. And one of the most useful components of nullification is that it teaches the federal government where its boundaries truly are. Because unfortunately, and, and unfortunately, we do have a federal government that seems to think that there are no real boundaries which constrain its power, provided that it thinks it's doing something good. But on the other side of that, you also have a history in this country of peaceful civil disobedience, non-compliance with unjust laws. And for the states to take up that responsibility is perfectly appropriate. Now, does that mean a state will always make the correct decision? No. Does that protect the state from any consequences that might arise from that decision? No. But it is, a, is it a legitimate way to push back on federal power? I think it can be. I think it can be. What's another case of nullification? Well, we're starting to see it more with gun laws. Here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, we actually had several localities at the same time that the Virginia legislature, right, the same people that were telling you, nobody wants to take your guns. Well, it turns out, as soon as the Democrats got power within the Virginia General Assembly and controlled the governor's mansion, what did they do? They drafted a bill which would have amounted to gun confiscation. It would have criminalized you for owning not just firearms that were perfectly legal beforehand. It would have criminalized you for owning, owning a magazine that contained more than 12 rounds. So if you had five magazines, 
containing more than 12 rounds, you could spend up to five years in jail for that. And what did we have? We had a hundred, over a hundred localities within Virginia that essentially told the state government that if you pass this, we will not assist you in the enforcement of it. That's a form of nullification. And you're starting to see more of these movements take place on a state level against federal power when it comes to trying to crack down on Second Amendment rights. Again, it, is, is, that a, is that a common sense approach for an equal party to a contract to come in and say we are not going to, we're not going to accept a dynamic where the federal government is the final arbiter of what it can do and what it can't do? I think it is. Again, it doesn't mean it's always going to be used properly. But I don't see, I don't see what the alternative is. And so I think we need to properly understand the purpose of nullification. It is not there and should not be used in order to push back against federal laws that are made in accordance with the authorities and jurisdictions of the federal government. That's not what it's for. But when it has become clear, when a state legislature is so convinced that the federal government has overstepped its boundaries, I think it is a proper mechanism, or as Jefferson put it, the rightful remedy. And again, the purpose of nullification is not to lead to secession. Because if you really do, if, if you don't allow for something like nullification, now you enter into an environment where the state feels like it has no alternative. It is now put into an environment where it is completely subservient to the federal government, where it can essentially be subject to laws which put it at a very specific disadvantage to other states. And the question I have to ask you is that if you were a party to a contract, where the other members of that contract were continually oppressing you or harming you or forcing you to comply with laws which you thought were unjust and outside the boundaries of the contract, what would you do? You would leave the contract. Well, obviously, we don't want that to happen. We don't want states to resort to secession. So there needs to be some sort of mechanism where a state can say, look, we are still a member of the union, but this has reached a point where it is such a violation of the agreement between the states and the federal government that we are not going to assist in its implementation. And, and the remedy to that, the remedy to nullification, is that if the citizens of that state don't agree, they can elect different members of their state legislature, they can elect a different governor that will take them on a different course of action. But there has to be that release valve. Because if they're not, all you leave left is conflict. And you actually drive people to a point where instead of using a peaceful mechanism in order to remain unified in principle, but to have disagreements on certain process, if you take that away, you are pushing people toward other, quote, solutions, which might have far more dire consequences. And so it's important that we understand the nature of this as a legal concept, but also as a practical mechanism for the very federalist concepts upon which our government was created in the first place. One of the most ingenious principles enshrined in our Constitution was the ideal of competing powers. Because when power is no longer competing with other powers and other interests, when it is so centralized and contains so much authority or ability to impose its will, History shows us that republics collapse under the weight of themselves. 
Because when you've got a nation like the United States with 330 million plus people, when you've got far different social, cultural, and geographical components and economic components all over the country that are now completely and utterly at the mercy of a centralized authority that can now harm one party or one state to the benefit of others or a group of states to the benefit of others. You have gone past federal authority and I might add, I would say you've also violated the limiting principle of the general welfare clause because Congress is not supposed to pass laws that punish a particular state in order to benefit other ones. That's part of what general welfare clause was meant to do. It wasn't meant to be a blank check for the federal government, but to constrain their actions in such a way so that the federal government could not pick winners and losers among states on various issues in which it had no jurisdiction to decide. So I'm going to encourage you to do something. I'm going to encourage you to pick up Tom Woods' book, uh, Nullification. Tom Woods is a Harvard graduate. He's a PhD. Um, he has done extensive research on, on this particular topic. And I think he's done a, a great job. And one of the reasons we, I think he has done a great job is because you have so many people that have never read his book, never considered his arguments, refused to debate him, that are just trying to pass him off as he's some sort of apologist for slavery. If you know anything about Tom Woods, he, he is, you will be hard-pressed to find anybody more dedicated to individual liberty than Tom Woods. Right? And, and I think the other important component that he brings out in this book, which I think is also important whenever we look at any sort of argument, is that we should judge arguments based off of the merit of the argument, not exclusively based off of who made the argument. Because people can make good arguments for bad reasons. That doesn't mean the argument is bad. It could mean that their reasons are bad. But the solution to that is to come back with a better argument, not simply use an ad hominem attack, which is a log logical fallacy where you attack the person instead of the argument, but to actually carefully consider the argument and carefully consider nullification as a rightful remedy to check federal power, not for the purpose of dissolving the United States, but by providing a mechanism where we can stay unified in principle while having civil and peaceful disagreements about the application of certain principles and the expansive nature of federal power. All right, that's really important, really important. So Nullification by Tom Woods. You can also check out his uh, podcast, The Tom Woods Show. And look, I, I've met Tom Woods. I, I think he's an incredible thinker. I don't always agree with Tom on, on things, uh, but I, I do think when, when he makes an argument, it's always incredibly well-researched. And I think he's, he's, that those arguments are worth listening to, and I, I think you'll get a lot out of it. Um, another thing I want to talk about here really quickly. This Saturday, obviously we have a lot of things going on in the country right now with respect to police reform. We have the, the uh, Chauvin trial going on in Minnesota right now. Uh, the National Guard has been called in. People are, are anticipating riots based off of what the verdict might come back as. And in light of all of this happening, the backdrop of all of this happened, uh, Young Americans uh, for Freedom, YAF, have asked me to come down to UVA in Charlottesville, Virginia, to a Back the Blue rally. And when I got this invitation, I had, <laughs> I had a number of people say, Nick, I don't think it's a good idea for you to attend in light of everything that's going on right now. And some people said you shouldn't attend because they think there'll be political consequences for showing up to UVA, to a college campus in Charlottesville, 
to talk about law enforcement from the perspective of having a general support for the, the police. So some people think it's a bad political move. Other people said don't do it because they're actually concerned about the physical safety of the people organizing this and the people that will be participating in this. And my response back was, I think that's why I need to go. And the reason why I think that's important is because if we're not willing to share our perspective in an environment where there are potential prices to be paid, then it really calls into question how much we really believe in it. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I, I congratulate the people that are putting it on. And I look forward to talking about law enforcement in America. Because when I hear back the blue, here's what I interpret that as. Back the blue is not a blank check to people in law enforcement. It is not a blank check. I have never believed that. Anybody that knows me knows that I'm very skeptical of government power and that I am constantly working on behalf of securing individual liberty. And so I am dedicated to criminal justice reform and police reform, properly understood. But we're also going to have an opportunity to talk about what it is like to be a police officer within the United States, both within the legal system that they're charged with enforcing and the overall social dynamic with which they operate under. And my hope is, is that we'll be able to go into this environment and actually have a dialogue about this. Because look, if you believe the police shouldn't exist at all, okay, I'm, I'm probably not going to say much that is going to convince you otherwise. My, my theory is generally, if you don't think the police should exist at all, I, I would be very interesting to see an environment, given human nature, where that, that works out. Okay, maybe it could. I, I'm open to the argument. I don't find it convincing as I've heard them. Having said that, we should be focused. For those of us that do believe that we should have a police force, and I do, we should be able to have a conversation. We should be able to share perspective on what an ideal police force looks like. Because one point that I've stressed a lot is that a lot of the problems that I think people have with men and women in law enforcement are problems that are more properly assigned, not to the people in law enforcement, but to the legislators that pass the laws, which they then expect men and women in blue to go out and enforce. And so I'm looking forward to having that dialogue. I'm looking forward to hearing different perspectives. I'm looking forward to asking the question, what does a good police force look like? And how do we actually share the ideas to achieve it? With the understanding that there's going to be disagreements. But I do think there's areas where we actually can come together and recognize that good police officers are still owed the same due process that we afford to everybody else in society. But by the same token, when a police officer violates that oath, they need to be held to account. And having spent a lot of time around people within law enforcement, the vast majority of the ones I know are also dedicated to that principle. They do not like being painted with the brush of bad cops acting in a bad way. They don't want to be associated with them either. So what are the mechanisms that we, that we use to protect individual liberty, to protect the physical safety of our communities, and to foster the sort of police department that is going to be responsive to community needs? All right, so I look forward to that. It'll be this Saturday at 2 p.m. at UVA at the Rotunda. Again, it, it should be interesting. And we're also going to see, we're also going to see whether or not we can still have these conversations on issues which can oftentimes delve into high degrees of controversy, 
Can we still have these on a college campus? Or is that no longer a space where we can actually discuss different perspectives and arrive at truth? Well, we're going we're gonna to get to see on Saturday. Uh, once again, I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument. Thank you very much for joining us. Also, please, please, please give us a five-star rating. Write us a quick review. Share with your friends. Also, check out the Why Minutes at thewhyminutes.com. That's the one. If Look, if you've got a short attention span and me talking on for 30 to 40 minutes is just too much for most people or too much for friends of yours, but you still want to be able to share certain ideas or concepts, the Why Minutes are usually two to three minutes long. We usually tackle a, a pressing issue, whether it be our next episode's coming out. We're going to be talking about freedom of speech. We're going to be talking about the nature of hard work. We're going to talk about all these things through sharing stories, easy to understand stories that are relevant, that look at issues from a different perspective and a different dynamic. So the whyminutes.com, check that out. If you're anywhere near Charlottesville on Saturday and you want to see that, um, please show up there as well. You can find more information online as well with YAF, Young Americans for Freedom. Thank you again for joining us and we'll see you next week. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.